All right, everybody, it is time for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. But before we dive in to our awesome, awesome guest and conversation today, I want to remind you guys of two things. And the first one is that if you go to Crypto101insider.com, you can join our private community. Here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks. We also have uh, Crypto 101 University. Uh, where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy-to-understand way. Uh, and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out and quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to Crypto101Insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, It took 11 months of our lives to write, and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. We walk you through this fascinating world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and it's part history book, it's part instructional guide, and it's going to really show you guys why cryptocurrencies are globally disruptive and how they're going to actually change in real life and in real terms the way that we buy and sell and even live. We include a bunch of how-tos on getting started with your first exchanges. Uh, We give you tips on how to safely buy and sell and store cryptocurrencies, as well as how do we evaluate potentially good cryptocurrencies. And the best part of the book is that we're giving it away for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping and handling. So go to CryptoRevolution.com and pick up your copy today. To another amazing episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm here with my trusted compatriot, Bryce Paul. Bryce, how are you doing today, man? Howdy, partner. Uh, things are going just dandy. Uh, I'm excited for this one. Who we got on the show today? Today, we are going to be getting some insights into DeFi with Michael Beck from Union Finance. He's uh, from the capital of pizza, New York City. So, Michael, welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. We usually get like a background story and an origin story, blah, blah, blah. But you're a really bright guy. We want to get right into what you are an expert at, and that is DeFi risk. And that is something that most people don't ever really think about until they get rug pulled or a pool gets drained. Can you tell us how we should be assessing DeFi risk versus rewards? And what are some good standards to consider when deciding if an opportunity is even worth the risk? Well, I, I think, you know, let, let me start off by saying, you know, well, I'm not an investment advisor, so I, I don't want to, uh, you know, be positioned, you know, as someone, you know, telling someone else how to allocate capital. I, I truly believe, though, that, you know, whenever you put money into an investment or a purchase, you should ask yourself if you can afford it and if you could afford the, the total loss. And I think that, you know, a lot of success even from you know the most successful portfolio managers or investors typically comes on the side of risk management and it's really just thinking about well what happens when what you think is going to happen doesn't happen and from the perspective of defi it's what happens when the project that you think is going to be a success is a rug pull or what happens when the smart contract that you've locked value into does get hacked 
or what happens when the transaction you were hoping would finalize didn't because you didn't, you know, have enough gas and the transaction didn't make its way through, you know, into the block. There, there are always those types of questions. And, you know, active risk management is part of being a trader. It's uh, part of being a portfolio manager. You know, when you're dealing with other people's capital, it becomes even more important. So I think as, you know, you see capital being attracted to the blockchain, you know, through DeFi, um, you begin to find people looking to offset or shift or, or, or diffuse some of those risks. This is a question we like to ask a lot of people uh, to come on the show just because it's a pretty open-ended one, but it always uh, kind of elicits the, the coolest, most unique answers. And really, it's a simple one. It's like, what is cryptocurrency to you or you know, what is DeFi to you? Uh, what is cryptocurrency to me? So cryptocurrency to me is the, uh, and, and this is going to sound like the political economist I am. It's uh, going to, it, it, for me, cryptocurrency is um, the fetishization, if you will, of the compute power and uh, computation and electricity required to validate a ledger. And that's kind of where, for me, cryptocurrency gets its value. So, you know, if you look at Bitcoin, why, does, why is Bitcoin valuable? It's because the ledger is valuable. You know, why is Ethereum valuable? It's because the ledger is valuable. And, you know, we use cryptocurrency to capture the value that was associated in, you know, the, gaining consensus around the, uh, the blocks that are formed by the transactions on those chains. So that, that for me is what cryptocurrency represents. For me, you know, it, looking at broader DeFi, you know, it, it's the empowerment of individuals to compose a number of self-sovereign um, entitlements and services to uh, be able to engage in financial transactions with other people. Got it. Well, let's talk about uh, financial transactions via something that's called smart contracts. And what a smart contract is, is an application that allows two parties to transact with one another without the need of a, another server or another middleman participant giving them permission. But there's a, one smart contract is not like the other. Not all smart contracts are created equal. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us at a high level, you know, how does a smart contract become secure and what are the risks of transacting in this kind of environment as opposed to just going on Coinbase and buying and selling there or using a normal, you know, application from uh, your Apple app store? Sure, sure. So uh, I, I guess let me start off by saying anyone can write a smart contract, but like most software, um, smart contracts are often imperfect. So a lot of people always say, you know, it's, it's really, really amazing that we can make hardware that always works, but for some reason, software is never finished or software is always buggy. And uh, that's a challenge. So, um, you know, smart contracts are written by development teams, hopefully, or developers, hopefully uh, more talented people than others, um, you know, or the ones that are attracting capital. And, um, you know, when you trust your capital into a smart contract, you know, when, you, when you're locking value or transacting through a smart contract, really, you're putting faith in that development team to, uh, to, to have made sure that, um, you know, the, the, the code was well tested um, and well understood uh, for, for the functions it's, a, 
you're going to be performing. It's a lot different than going to an app store um, in the way that, you know, apps on an app store can be updated. Often there's a central custodian, you know, of the application. The application can be taken down if it's harmful or if it isn't working properly. But in, you know, in a smart contract, a smart contract is executing a Across uh, multiple multiple nodes in the distributed ledger, and uh, it may not have an ability to be taken down, and may be open for attack. You know, from a number of unanticipated uh, places or or actors. You know, beyond what the development team may have initially planned for. So um, I think you know, going to the question of you know how, how do you know a smart contract is secure. How, how, how do you verify a smart contract as secure or try to write one? It's, you know, it's typically, you know, through testing, it's through, you know, steps for formal verification to the extent that that can be performed. Um, it's uh, through using third parties for audit. And, um, you know, as we believe with, you know, our project, you know, it's, it's through, you know, public, you know, public uh, testing and, um, you know, and, and transparency in terms of posting the code for review and open source or vetting, especially where, you know, um, projects are trying to be creative. Are there any, uh, well, I know there are some real world examples of, of hacks in the space on smart contracts. Are there any that you're intimately familiar with or knowledgeable about that you could kind of just at a high level kind of talk about and then also how it could have been avoided? So, so I mean, I, I don't like to point out failings of specific, you know, specific projects or specific teams, because I really feel like when something happens bad in DeFi or bad in, you know, blockchain with regard to, you know, a, a distributed application or a smart contract, it really just prevents growth of the ecosystem because it creates a lot of uncertainty and doubt, you know, for potential adopters. And, it, you know, it, it, it's takes a while for people to, to, to grow back their faith. So instead of, you know, trying to, you know, highlight specific things or specific teams, rather, I'd much rather just talk about specific practices. And I, I think that the, the types of things that we typically see that, that, that cause problems are, of course, putting code out into the wild that hasn't been formally tested. You know, and that, that's because of, I think, the pressure to innovate or the pressure to, you know, or, or the challenge to do things well, but not necessarily understanding, you know, the risks or having enough eyes, you know, to work on complicated problems, you know, in a pure environment. So I, I think that, you know, testing, thorough testing is definitely something, you know, that, that could prevent a lot of the problems that uh, people see. Um, you know, there's some challenges around key management and hacks. I mean, you'll often hear about the, uh, you know, administrative keys being stolen or administrative keys being misappropriated or accidentally uploaded into a repository. Um, that, that's key management that happens, you know, in every environment. And that's really just about good operational security and making sure that as an organization, you know, you're keeping your eyes on your important assets. Um, but that's critical, especially with smart contracts where you have, you know, lots of people's money, you know, locked, you know, on a, on a chain inside of a contract where that one key can unlock that value and, you know, move that value to, to someone for whom that, that value is, wasn't originally intended. So outside of testing and key management, I mean, there are other things. I mean, sometimes, you know, there, there, there are issues in code associated with permissions, you know, where people aren't necessarily, you know, considering the order of operations or the order of roles, you know, or the way that roles interact with contracts, you know, where say, I'm trying to think of one example where, um, you know, someone may be able to call a contract 
uh, on behalf of someone else and set a value that they that that other party has either negative or um, you know out of bounds in some way that it removes their you know that other party's value uh-huh. in the contract. So that again, like falls to you know again good testing, but also mm-hmm. thinking about how these things are being used. And uh, good vetting. So I, I think that you know ultimately, you know, using third-party auditors, static analysis, uh, formal verification, all those things, you know, ultimately have help to uh, make contracts more robust. And uh, you know, good operational security keeps uh, keeps keys and teams safe. Fascinating. So, so tell us specifically, uh, where does union finance come into the equation here? So. Union actually started off with the premise that, you know, looking at DeFi, we felt that DeFi was uh, complicated. We thought it was expensive and we thought it was pretty risky. And we we wanted to find ways to make DeFi cheaper and less risky and, and perhaps simpler for people who want to be able to engage the ecosystem. Because for the average person trying to engage in DeFi, gas prices can can eat up a lot of the transaction value. Uh, that, that that parties are trying to engage in uh, a lot of the a lot of the the, the contracts or, or protocols that people use are, aren't necessarily the easiest to understand, and it's really easy to lose a lot of value very quickly if you if you aren't an expert or you have a lot of ca- you don't have a lot of capital to play with. So Union basically started from that perspective, and in, in thinking about that, we we began to think about what would insurance look like in DeFi and how should insurance best capture some of the risks that people see you know, in DeFi? And, and perhaps the, the biggest or, or the, the largest things that we saw that weren't being addressed in DeFi through insurance was the need to address composability, the need to address uh, pseudo-anonymity, and uh, the need to address Capital, capital utilization and transaction finality. Those were the things that we thought that you know we should best, you know, place insurance against. And um, you know, the, this is where we're currently focused with union and union projects. That's really awesome. I thought when DeFi insurance came out, which is very new, like this was the missing piece of the ecosystem. That that extra peace of mind. So, how do you guys? issue an insurance policy for DeFi? Do we need to fill out some long form and then wait three weeks and get asked a bunch of questions? I mean, for example, I've been trying to get health insurance for the employees of one of my entities. And it's been like a two month back and forth conversation because it's across multiple states and they don't know which subsidiary has jurisdiction over this person. It's a nightmare. And I'm basically just telling them to take my money. How does DeFi insurance work? Hopefully, a little better. Well, this, to start with, we're not an insurer. So I'll start off by saying Union is not an insurer. We're we're a provider of software, APIs, tools, you know, a protocol specifically that allows people who want to take risk to share that risk with people who want to be able to pay for that risk. So think about us in the same way that you think about Uber as a livery service. You know, they're a software provider at the end of the day. Um, we see ourselves as a software provider just the same because we don't actually take the other side of any of the risk. So that makes us different from other insurance companies or protocols that have dressed DeFi in that um, they, they perhaps you know are either brokering or they're um, acting as a mutual you know underwriting or sponsoring the risk that, that or the policy that's being sold. So we're so we're I can earn a yield 
by taking on risk? You can earn a yield by paying for the benefits that someone else is willing to pay the premium for. Yes. Interesting. So it's you're not providing the insurance, but you're providing the infrastructure for insurance that can be collateralized and peer-to-peer um, assumed on both sides. Exactly. So if you can imagine on one side, you could sell the policy. On the other side, you could actually sell the exposure. But isn't wow. that similar just to an options market like Darabit? Um, it's a little bit different, right? So you can think about insurance as doing two types of things, right? So you're used to the idea, you know, in credit markets, sometimes people just play the event, right? And they don't necessarily care about the value, but they've levered up, you know, on the event. And ultimately, you know, they're due several million dollars, but really their exposure was only a couple thousand. Correct. You see that happen in traditional finance and credit markets all the time. Then you have other things that are more liquidated damage insurance, where like, for instance, you know, you total your car, you get a replacement car, but you're not entitled to several times over the value of your car, regardless of how many years you've been paying for the policy. So, you know, we are very much focused on both of these ideas in DeFi. But, you know, from from the perspective of an option, an option is typically where, you know, someone may or may not have the underlying, you know, at risk, you know, liquidated damages. Typically, you have you have possession of something that you're trying to protect. Mm -hmm. So so these are the granularities that I never. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Or knew about. <laughs> so you, you can use an option sometimes to protect your downside you know, of financial loss. But if you actually have something and it means something to you and you lose it, you know, there's still, you know, the sentimental value, for instance, that you can't replace, even though you're able to replace the monetary value. So, you know, you could think about, you know, the the same, the the insurance that you use to protect the downside on, you know, the volatility of ETH would possibly work, you know, to protect you, you know, if you lost an NFT for which, you know, you paid 1500 bucks. But, you know, if the NFT means a lot to you, you know, you probably want something that also protects the sentimentality. And that's where, as union, you know, we, we look at policies and we say policies should be composable. So perhaps there's a monetary value, but there's also a senti- you know, sentimentality or sentimental value where some people are willing to pay the sentimental benefit. Some people are willing to pay the monetary benefit. And therefore, as a policyholder, you're entitled to both. Wow. And... This is blowing my mind. This is one of the, probably the most informative discussions we've had on, on on the topic here on the podcast in the few years that we've had it. So we really appreciate you kind of like walking us through this at a high level. Um, yeah. So so how far along in in the process are you guys? Like, you know, how long has the company been or, or, or the protocol been developed? And what stages of development are you? And kind of where are you guys going next? Well, you know, a lot of the formative work. Uh, for union started a, a couple years ago, but we didn't really start hitting stride uh, with respect to DeFi until the beginning of last year, say February of last year is when we really started putting ideas to paper about how we wanted to be able to address problems, you know, on the Ethereum chain using the experience that we had, you know, in general, you know, blockchain and DApp development. And 
you know, to this point, we're really focused on the release of our first product, which is really focused on collateral optimization in the, in the context of lending. So uh, today, you know, it's pretty common if you want to borrow, um, you know, a stable coin from a lender, you know, in a DeFi context, you typically will put down 100, 150 plus percent of uh, a floating currency in order to be able to get that stable coin. And uh, we believe that you should be able to borrow at or below, you know, money when you when, when you place collateral. Uh, so we're our first uh, product is focused on collateral optimization and allowing people to purchase an insurance product that will handle the volatility concerns associated with their collateral so that they can make more use of their floating currency in a borrowing context. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to highlight was you said borrow at money. Can you kind of unpack a little bit what that means? Yeah. So it, when, when you want to borrow $100 from someone and you leave them you know, collateral, you don't want to leave them $1,000. You want to leave them wor- something worth $100. You don't want to leave them $150. You want to leave them $100. You don't, so you want, don't even want to, to over collateralize the loan. You don't, you don't want to over collateralize. You want to, you want to borrow with collateral at money. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to yeah. be at the value of what you're borrowing or possibly below if you're not, you know, if you're not a, a strong risk. And that's been something that's a big problem in this space is any other platform that is doing loans, you've got to collateralize sometimes up to 300%. Exactly. Which isn't a, it, it's not a wise use of capital. You know, and and if you think about it, it makes your you know it makes that stable coin that much more precious and that much more expensive because you're locking up you know coin that has you know perhaps more volatility and possibly more upside with a with a lender during the time that you're trying to make use of a, of a stable coin. So if we're able to reduce the amount of collateral necessary. That 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 volatile token, you know, could be sitting in your wallet, could be used for other things, or to even borrow more money, and that 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 gets more. I think takes more advantage of the time value of money from a borrower's perspective, and mm-hmm. from a lender's perspective, you know, it, it allows for more flexibility and timing, you know, regarding loans because you don't necessarily need to unwind as quickly because you have insurance that you know that will that that the collateral will maintain a certain value up to a certain point. Interesting. So so let's contextualize this conversation a little bit uh, in in perspective of the audience, right? So, so Michael, who are you building union for? And a lot of the people who are watching uh, are you know, maybe traders or just crypto enthusiasts, and maybe a slight small few are co- smart contract developers. Um, but is union something that the average consumer is going to be interacting with, or is it just going to be a system running on the back end? So right now, our, our focus on uh, cl- collateral optimization is really for the DeFi borrower. It's really for someone who's looking to go out there. They they have some Bitcoin or they have some you know Ethereum, and they want to you know get some USDC or some USDT or Dai to 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 participate in the DeFi ecosystem, and they want to be able to borrow at money, uh, with, without locking up additional collateral. Uh, so that's that that's more of a B two C view. But you can see from our partnerships, we've been talking to a lot of lending platforms about integrating this as a technology. That'll be great that when it's integrated uh, and people could just seamlessly kind of toggle it through uh, kind of wherever they are. I, I could see something, um, you know, with MetaMask, right? A very simple integration uh, that would allow you to, to kind of perform these sorts of abilities just at the click of a button. 
Well, and, and that's that's the idea, right? So at some point, I mean, when you start talking about simple arbitration around insurance contracts, it's very easy to tell whether Ethereum dropped below a certain price or Bitcoin right. dropped. There, there's no need to go to court to figure out whether, you know, the property was in someone's possession and what value was it at when the insurance policy was, you know, should be collected. And Absolutely. these are the simple types of contracts that we're building into to begin with. And we're looking to go to more, um, more, more complicated attestation and arbitration models as we look at different types of composable insurance in different markets. You know, for instance, I think at one point you were talking about health insurance. Health insurance would be a wonderful thing to be able to source from locked value and DeFi back into the physical world. Mm. Uh, one major trend we're seeing right now, Michael, is DeFi leaving the Ethereum ecosystem mm-hmm. and going on to other areas. It's exactly mm-hmm. what I was going to say, Pete. <laughs> yeah. Are, are we going to see the same issues uh, that we have with Ethereum smart contracts on things that use something called formally verified contracts on platforms like Cardano or Tezos? Look, I think that everyone, uh, I, I mean, let, let's start off with formal verification is a good thing. Okay. Um, you know, and testing is a good thing. And the more deterministic a contract is, the more better planned the contract is, the better, you know, someone is guaranteed that it's going to operate it's supposed to, the way it's supposed to. So uh, fundamentally, any platform that, you know, any, any platform and even formal verification engines for, you know, for Ethereum also, you know, are great things. But of course, you know, as these things work, they calculate, they take more gas, you know, they, they, they create overhead. That's not necessarily a bad thing if you get value from it. The thing that makes Ethereum expensive right now is everyone is pushing for transaction finality. You know, there's a demand for, the, you know, the, the, the price of ETH goes up, you know, because people are demanding, you know, to be able to pay more gas in order to make sure their transactions go through in the block they want. And I would imagine as demand for execution goes on to other chains, you're going to see the native tokens of those chains increase in value, which is good for those holders. And uh, necessarily, you're going to find, you know, prices get expensive. And for the chains that don't plan congestion, you can see some congestion as well. So I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, the execution environment matters as much as, you know, the, the community and the community's access to the services that the execution environment is providing. So if people are looking for service on, you know, EOS, or they're looking for service on Ethereum, or they're looking for service on Cardano, I mean, where, wherever that community is, you know, as union, you know, we're happy to service them any place that they they, they want to be. Ultimately, you know, the, the uh, demand for gas and uh, the, the cost of transacting, I think, will level itself out. Yeah, I love this notion that you're talking about of just this, you know, kind of having people understand, you know, Tezos, a platform a, as a shared trusted execution environment, right? Or Cardano, a shared TEE, trusted execution environment. Same thing for Ethereum. And, and, and what people don't really realize, it's it's so similar to kind of like a shared cloud almost in a sense, right? But it has a different purpose or as cloud is shared data storage. And so we're all, there, there, we're there's all a, a very unique dynamic. We're all time sharing, right? And then someone puts a CryptoKitties application on it and then you realize, well, you know, look where the priority for processing goes and you don't necessarily get the outcome you're looking for, uh, you know, but you get right. the, but you get that innovation. So, you know, you, you want the critical mass of innovation on the chain and you can't necessarily direct the outcomes. Ultimately, the chain and the, 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 uh, the nodes of the chain have to adopt, you know, adapt 
to the demands. It's funny because I, lo- I love also the idea that you said that it doesn't really matter as much about the execution environment as it does uh, the community and of the people and the users and the infrastructure around it. And that's what, what's so interesting about this Cardano phenomenon is it's, you know, it's soaring in price, but they don't even really have smart contracts yet. And so there's the speculative buy-up of like these tokens that people are going to assume are going to be super used. But once maybe Cardano officially, you know, launches everything, like would the token crash because people would compare it to like how many transactions and usability things are going on on Cardano relative to Ethereum. Um, and it could be very, very minuscule, but of course, not speculating on price, just saying it's an interesting phenomenon. I love the direct correlation, Michael, that you kind of drew between people's demand to settle uh, quickly and uh, in, in fi- finally on a platform. Uh, so they have to buy up more Ethereum or whatever in order to kind of pay gas for that. Um, and, and as that usage continues to grow, demand for that that base grows. So. I don't know. A lot of, lot of interesting dynamics to, to yeah, kind of think and, and about. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, a place like Cardano, I mean, Cardano has always been rich in thought leadership from the beginning. You know, they, they I, I remember looking at Cardano's, you know, white paper library and, you know, R3's white paper library and saying, boy, there are a lot of people thinking about some stuff pretty deeply here. And not every project has started that way. So you get a community that starts thinking about things in a different way and it creates different value in the ecosystem for certain types of people who want to tra- transact. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, people pay a premium, even if the smart contract platform isn't completed, just for the premise of the fact that there's going to be one one day with that ethos. So one of the other things that I've been thinking about, Michael, uh, kind of in closing, uh, is, is the future of DeFi in time frame. One of the famous quotes that I've heard is like people over anticipate things in the near term and under anticipate in the long term. But kind of what's your timeline for for how these things are going to be playing out? Are we looking? Are we here? Are we looking five years, 10 years? I mean, I, I think that we're at the point where institutions are beginning to take notice, but we're not at the point where what's happening in DeFi is changing the way that, um, you know, Bank of America or JP Morgan are operating today. You know, if you know that if you look, PayPal will let you buy cryptocurrency. That's the beginning. You know, so so you're beginning to find democratized access to on ramps and off ramps, but you still don't see you know a, a suite of composable services you know being offered by you know by your you know your selected retail branch, and that that I think is much further in the future, if at all. I think that there's still going to be a desire for centralized players with known brands, especially where, you know, there, there's a bit of a tax associated with figuring out how to assemble these DeFi services for ourselves. And, you know, there've been a number of players who've tried to enter into DeFi, composing these services or making these services more accessible, but, you know, they're taking the governance tokens or taking some of the alpha off the back end, you know, that, that, that users of DeFi, you know, come to appreciate. So uh, it's, it's not, I, I think we're just at the beginning of it. But I don't think that we're far off from a common, you know, conventional understanding, you know, that this is a direction that things should be going in. Mm, Fantastic. Yeah, I actually just read some recent news today. I mean, we're recording this on the 9th of March and uh, JP Morgan actually just announced a new structured product for uh, 11 stocks that uh, will be all holding cryptocurrencies. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. It's kind of their first really 
foray into structured products that are directly crypto related. So we're we're moving the needle slowly but surely here. Well, it all starts it all starts with things and structures that the institutions can understand. So if you remember, yeah, like the first barrier was custody. You know. The first barrier mm-hmm. is custody. You know, how do I hold these keys? If I'm used to executing away from me, how do I execute away from me? Because, you know, a lot of people are used to using brokers. So, you know, the idea of trading directly as an institution is sometimes difficult. Um, so you have custody, you, 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 ha- you have the idea of brokerage, you know, so you've seen the growth of OTC in, in, in crypto, um, you know, and then of course, people then start talking about taxes. How do, how do I, you know, how do I start to calculate unrealized gains? For instance, which could be a challenge depending on what you know what value you're valuing your Bitcoin at. So, it's you know as in, as these things become more conventional, you know the institutions will I think be, begin to you know test a little bit more and do as you, you know you just mentioned you know as JP Morgan is looking at you know various stocks that are holding cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, there, there's. I just love how every year we kind of make it a step further and a step further, and and we're just standing on the shoulders of giants and solving one problem after another after another, and then slowly but surely we're we're gonna wake up one day and uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies will have eaten the world. <laughs> uh, Michael, I got one last question for you, and it's one of these things that we just ask everybody who comes on the show. Sure. Um, you know. If this is the very first podcast that that somebody was listening to about the cryptocurrency space, first off, if this is the first one they just listened to, congrats on making it all the way through. Your mind is probably melting right now. Uh, but Michael, if we could just zoom out, what's one word of wisdom that you would give these folks? Um, keep it simple. It's not like you're stepping into the matrix, you know, just because you're touching keys doesn't mean that, you know, you're Johnny Mnemonic, you know, there are conventional (laughs) ways to do things, you know, and and this stuff is way accessible for everyone, not just, you know, the the, the kid in their parents' basement. Um, You know, it really really surprises me when I talk to someone and they say, well, that's not for me. And I, I think it's because they don't understand it or because they haven't been spoken to directly about it, or they think that there's a generational gap in the way that this is being addressed, or they look at these assets as being too high risk for, you know, where they are in their savings, you know, in their lifetime savings cycle. It, it, it's nothing like that. I, I think that, you know, it, it's more about just, you know, the information is available and uh, it shouldn't be considered scary. And I think that that's my advice is don't be afraid of it. Wow. Could not have said it better. Yeah, that is great advice, Michael. Uh, The whole podcast has been great advice. So thank you so much for sharing all your words of wisdom with us today. We definitely want to continue the conversation uh, to date in the near future. Well, no, great talking to you guys. Really appreciate the time to come on and, you know, love to talk more. So uh, whenever there's an opportunity, please let me know. Absolutely. We'll uh, we'll be in touch. And everybody who's listening, uh, stay tuned because next week we're coming back with some more great guests. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.